So here's the, the classic description of breath meditation. There's a case where a monk, and here monk can mean any meditator, having gone to the wilderness to the shade of a tree to an empty building, sits down, you fold your legs crosswise, holding your body erect, and setting mindfulness to the fore. Always mindful you breathe in, mindful you breathe out. And then it goes through 16 steps. Again, this is another topic we could talk about all day, but I just will make a few brief observations. Breathing in long, you discern your breathing in long. Breathing out long, you discern your breathing out long. Breathing in short, breathing out short. Then you train yourself. There's an element of will that's brought in here for all the remaining ones. Okay, there's an element of intention. I'll breathe sensitive. I'll breathe in sensitive to the entire body, and you breathe sensitive, breathe out sensitive to the entire body. Then you train yourself. You breathe in calmly, calm, calming bodily fabrications, and you train yourself to breathe out calming bodily fabrications. Okay, what you're doing here is one getting sensitive to the breath as as you sense it. Once you become sensitive to it, then you try to calm it down. And this is a process that's going to be repeated for all the what we call the four tetrads. You sensitize yourself to something, calm it down. So in this case, it's just the process of in and out breathing. You become totally sensitive to the breathing process throughout the entire body, and then you calm it down. If you've ever read any of it, John Lee's instructions on breath meditation, one of the ways of becoming sensitive to the entire body is like that meditation instructions we had earlier this morning is think of the breath not just as air coming in and out of the lungs, but think of it as the energy flow throughout the body so that the whole body is involved in the breathing process. The whole body is breathed, is gets activated and then gets calmed down. What you're doing is you're changing your perception of breath. It's not just air coming in and out. If you change your perception of the breath to include the entire nervous system, okay, your body's going to breathe in a different way. That's changing mental fabrication. And you create a sense of ease. That's another sense of change in mental fabrication. And while you're doing it, you're employing directed thought and evaluation. You direct your thoughts to the breath, and then you evaluate. How does the breath feel? What kind of breathing feels good? What kind of breathing doesn't feel good? So what you've got here, as you're focusing on the breath, you've got all the different forms of fabrication involved. What you're trying to do is do them more mindfully with more alertness. That's the first test, first tetrad. Second tetrad. You train yourself, I'll breathe in, sensitive to rapture, breathe out, sensitive to rapture. You train yourself, breathe in, sensitive to pleasure, breathe out, sensitive to pleasure. You train yourself, I'll breathe in, sensitive to mental fabrication, i.e. perceptions and feelings, and breathe out, sensitive to mental fabrication. Then you train yourself to calm mental fabrication. In other words, breathe in such a way approach the process of breathing in such a way that feelings grow calm and labels grow calm as well. What do I mean by calm labels or calm perceptions? Okay, Just a sense of ease and you focus on the sense of ease. You drop all your scattered perceptions and all your other scattered ideas. And eventually get to the point where the breath feels so good that even the idea that you would want to improve the breath drops away. So you're just there with the breathing in and out. So again, this is a process of sensitizing yourself to this, this level of fabrication and then calming it down. Now, in order to sensitize it and calm down, it requires both being with the breath 
as, as a bodily fabrication and also dealing with directed thought and, evalu- and evaluation as your verbal fabrication, perceptions and feelings as mental fabrication. So you're employing all three different types of fabrication in this one process. Similarly with the third tetrad, you breathe in sensitive to the mind, it's just being sensitive to a bright awareness. Breathe out sensitive to the mind. And then you notice yourself. Breathe in, satisfying the mind. Breathe out, satisfying the mind. Steadying the mind, in and out, and releasing the mind. The way I read this is that you notice, okay, what does the mind need right now? You're sitting there meditating and you're getting sluggish. Okay, you need something to energize the mind, to gladden it, to satisfy it. Okay, on the other hand, you might start getting wobbly in your concentration. What what can you do to make it more steady? Make it more firm? And then finally, when you feel that the mind is being restrained by the way it's relating to its object, how do you release it? And then this can take you through various levels of concentration. So again, you're sensitizing yourself to what's going on, and then you find a greater sense of ease, well-being. Finally, in the fourth tetrad, okay, you breathe in and out, focusing on inconstancy, or sometimes translated as impermanence. You breathe out, focusing on inconstancy. This is where you're working directly with trying to develop that attitude of non-clinging. First you see things as inconstant, and then, of course, the the series of questions, if something is inconstant, then it's stressful. If it's stressful, then it's not self. So you let go. You develop dispassion for these things. Even the state of concentration that you've been developing, you begin to see that even that that state of concentration, no matter how skillfully you do it, there's always going to be an element of inconstancy because, after all, it is fabricated. You develop a sense of dispassion for it. And because you're dispassionate for it and because your experience of everything depends on your intentions, okay, if you start getting dispassionate for it, you don't want to get intentionally involved with these things. Some people say, you know, you develop dispassion for this, okay, I don't like this anymore, so you let it down. Okay, this, the thing is still going to exist because this, you know, this bowl does not depend on you know, my liking it or disliking it or my getting involved in it, right? But if you've got a state of concentration going or, or any kind of experience going that's got an element of your intention involved and you grow dispassionate for it, that experience is going to end because you've been creating it. And this is an important part of, of insight. It's not that you, you watch the world as a passing show and decide, I just don't want to watch it anymore. It's more that you've been playing this interactive computer game and you're realizing the more you get involved in this computer game, the more suffering is happening. So you just lose passion for it. What happens? The computer game stops because it required your input. If you don't see your input into things, you're not really going to get insight into it. That's the second point. If you take only two or three points away from today, that's another important point to take away. For insight to arise, you have to realize that you're implicated in the things that you are suddenly getting dispassionate for. It's not just that you know they're putting on a bad show on the TV. You realize, okay, I'm creating this bad show. <laughs> and then you turn around and see where you've been involved in it, and then you stop your involvement. That stops the bad show. Okay, when you develop that dispassion, then the cessation happens because you've stopped participating. And then relinquishment is giving up the whole thing. Even at that point, at this point, you even give up the, the factors of the path. So again, you 
you focus on gaining sensitivity, in this case sensitive to the inconstancy, even in refined states of concentration. You realize the extent to which you've been involved and then you disengage. That brings the mind to a calm that's even greater than concentration that comes through dispassion, cessation, and relinquishment. So what you're doing here in, in practicing breath meditation the way the Buddha described it is you're engaging all three forms of, the, of fabrication, bodily, mental, and, and verbal, trying to d- deal them all in a way that gets them more and more skillful until finally you can totally let go. Any question on that? Yes. Yeah, I just had a recent situation at, at work that was very similar, and I was very passionate about the work, and it was very painful. Mm-hmm. So I became dispassionate and didn't care, but then I didn't even care about doing the work. I just right. wasn't there for it at all anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, so that that didn't help me in the end because I still had to do it. Yeah, so yeah. it was a different kind of pain. So mm-hmm. I, I didn't quite know how to resolve that. Okay, you've got to we've got to redefine your passion. Okay, there's there's the passion for doing the job in and of itself. There's the passion for getting approval from your workers or getting cooperation from your workers. And the feeling that if you're not getting cooperation from them, well to hell with it. But then hell does happen, you know. Because <laughs> you're not doing the work. <laughs> so you've you've got to go back and redefine your motivation. Could you say uh, something about the difference between mental and verbal fabrications? Okay, it's it's a pretty subtle difference. But um, verbal fabrication is when you're actually creating sentences in your mind. The mental is, comes prior to that. You've got your feelings and you've got kind of disjointed words and disjointed perceptions. And when you're actually going to create a sentence to describe what's happening to yourself, then that turns into verbal fabrication. So it's kind of like the, the sentences in your in your mental chatter. That's verbal fabrication. The mental is not um, hasn't come into the verbal. It's it's, it's a, a vague image or a vague. Well, it's I would say mental fabrication here is just purely when you it's closer to the raw material of your experience in the sense of okay you've got feelings coming up pleasure pain and feelings here doesn't mean emotions it just means feeling tone, pleasure, pain, neither pleasure nor pain. And then there's a, there's a perception that says pleasure, it says pain, it says neither pleasure nor pain, or just kind of disjointed things. But then it's the process of putting that together, trying to make sense out of all that. That's the verbal fabrication. Say, even, even before you break into speech with somebody else, your, your mental discussion inside about what's, you know, how, how are you feeling, why are you feeling this way, and your creation of emotions around this, your creations of the thought world around this. This comes through verbal fabrication. Yes? I'll repeat the question. When you first notice the sensation, mm-hmm. that if you just stay with that 
and, and uh, don't, don't worry about it, then uh, I know the story doesn't seem to go very far. Right. So are you saying the mental um, fabrication is the story that follows the sensation? It can be either. Um, the, the mental fabrication is just kind of the raw material. Your verbal fabrication, in this case, you told yourself, don't take that further. That's already a verbal fabrication. Yep. Right. Well, both, all of our verbal fabrications. So once, once we learn how to talk, did we ever stop? <laughs> so, but it can be. I mean, it can either be very unskillful verbal fabrication. I just letting things, you know, proliferate into huge stories and huge issues, or it can be more skillful verbal fabrication. We say, okay, let's stop that. Again, it's, it's not that you're going to stop talking to yourself, but you learn how to talk to yourself in a more intelligent, more skillful way. I mean, that's a lot of what meditation practice is, is, is changing your internal dialogue. We need more mics. Don Jeff, this morning you mentioned uh, ignorance of the, the breath can be the basis for stress. Mm-hmm. And if we look at it, based on all the conversation we've had right now in regards to fabrication and verbal fabrication, and if we really watch um, the fabrications and then perceive that the breath does not need to be uh, stressful, and that maybe some of it is a result of something that happened earlier on, a little bit of tenseness, and you start releasing, how do we best understand the cessation? and maintain it and build on it. Understand cessation? Cessation of stress in this particular case. Okay, well, when you're talking about cessation, we're talking about two kinds. One is a particular instance of stress, stopping. In this particular case, it would be seeing that there was some sort of craving, had nothing to do, you weren't focusing on your breath, you were focusing on something else outside. And you just got totally wound up in that. You realize, my gosh, I'm so wound up in that that I've lost sense in my body. So you turn your attention around to be more in touch with your breath. So you've dropped that external craving to focus on this. So that, you know, the, the, the stress that was around that, some of that will drop as soon as you drop it, and the kind of the residual effect will pass away over time. But what you've done now, you've changed the topic of your conversation. Hopefully, to, you know, it's a more skillful one. How do you maintain that? Basically, I mean, you have to continue to maintain that understanding Mm -hmm. between what was the initial cause of stress, what is now been abandoned, Mm -hmm. and what's a good, what's helping Mm -hmm. the breathing and the fact that they're not fabricating uh, excessively. I'm just trying to figure out, I, I, I lose something there. I, I lose the connection. I, but keeping that continuity is... Oh, that's, that's, a, that's, a, that's a factor of mindfulness. Remind yourself, okay, the next time you get involved in a situation like this, don't lose touch with your breath. So that when you're at work and you know, one of your coworkers does something habitually stupid, you remind yourself, okay, we've been here before and I've lost it before, so this time I'm not going to lose it. I'm going to stay in the body and stay with my breath as I deal with the other person. 
and you find that basically it seems like it's giving yourself two things to do at once. And in the beginning, it is. It's going to feel very much like you're trying to handle balancing two separate things at once. And the problem is if you drop this, you're probably going to drop that as well. So at the very least, make sure you hold on to this. And you find that you know the, the quick things that you used to be able to say so quickly and easily, they don't come so quickly and easily anymore. And maybe that's good. Because it has, to, it has to go through a filter. But that's, it's, it's a process of, rem, of reminding yourself over and over, and this is what mindfulness is all about. I don't want to lose this, this area of my awareness. Because I know if I do, something is going to come about. Question back here. Yeah, a couple of uh, questions on terminology, because I know terminology reflects um, understandings and then it helps shape experience. So, um, the, the, the different terms are stress used to mean suffering. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, there would be other perspectives on that translation, right. I'm sure you've heard before. Um, the difference uh, between feelings and emotions, mm-hmm. uh, and also clinging and attachment. Mm-hmm. How, you, how, how you see those? Okay, um, stress. I use stress for three reasons. One is I know a lot of people who will say, I don't have any suffering in my life. And you ask them, but do you have any stress? Oh, yeah, lots of stress. Okay. So it's, so it's just an empirical, skillful it's, it's use. Empirical. It's empirical. You can connect with someone. Um, okay. Secondly, it applies even to states of strong concentration. It, you know, when you get somebody really blissing out on the jhanas, and you say, are you suffering? No, I'm not suffering at all. Then you say, okay, is there any stress in there? Oh, I've got to go back and look. Because it can be very subtle, and it's very important. The third one is you cannot romanticize stress. You can romanticize suffering. The stress isn't romantic. <laughs> so it sort of help, helps cut through a lot of the stuff. You know, you know, my noble suffering. Do we ever does anybody say my noble stress? No. <laughs> But what about the idea that um, there's some stress in, inherent in life? I mean, okay, that's, that's, that's the stress of the three characteristics as opposed to the stress of the Four Noble Truths. Now, the stress of the Four Noble Truths is the one you want to work on. The three characteristics, you don't have to do anything about that except to notice that you're trying to create happiness based on something that cannot provide the foundation you want. And then, and then feelings and emotions? Okay, um, this is because there's no really one good English term for the word Vedana in, in Pali. The closest you get is feelings of pleasure, pain, neither pleasure nor pain. Kind of a feeling tone. Whereas emotions, well, you know what an emotion is. It's actually, it's created by all these forms of fabrication. You know, when, when, say, greed arises or lust arises, okay, it's going to change the way you breathe, the things that you're directing your thoughts to, and the way you're evaluating your thoughts. And this is when they talk, you know, women complain about being objectified by men. All of a sudden, you're not looking at them as a person, you're looking at them as an object. And you're evaluating them as objects. And of course, they're going to, you know, they're going to... Going to so emotions are, are more constructed. They're more constructed, yeah. Uh, but you, you're not implying, are you, that, that, they're, that they're all unwholesome? No, in fact, what you've got to learn how to do is you have an unwholesome emotion, you want to create wholesome emotions in their place. This is what the Brahma Viharans are all about. You're feeling a lot of anger for somebody. You've got to learn how to take apart that anger so that you're not, one, you're not acting on it, but at the same time, you're not bottling it up. So you learn to look at, okay, what, what do you have here? You've got the bodily fabrication, which is the way you're breathing. 
You've got the verbal fabrication, the way you're directing your thoughts and evaluating what's going on. And then you've got mental fabrications, which are the feeling tones and perceptions. So, okay, let's take the emotion apart and let's put together a new emotion. Now, if that sounds artificial, remind yourself that you're doing this all the time, unconsciously. One. Two, other people are trying to do this to you all the time, too. They're trying to manipulate your emotions. If you don't believe me, go turn on the TV set. Right. But since you're talking about emotions and unconscious, maybe I had another question, and that is uh, people communicate emotionally, Mm -hmm. unconsciously, beneath the threshold of consciousness. Much of human communication is outside of the awareness. How do you think that impacts the trajectory you were talking about before? That's to say the whole process of becoming aware of our impacts Mm -hmm. on other people. Mm -hmm. When so many of these impacts are outside of the, beneath the threshold of consciousness. Well, it's because we put them beneath the threshold. They don't have to be there. You sure? A lot of it is, say, physical, how you hold the body. And again, there's an intentional element in that, because through the breath. And we've had the experience, I'm sure, when a person will walk into the room, all they have to do is just walk in the room, and it's got everybody on edge. They haven't said anything, they haven't done anything, it's just the, the way they're inhabiting their body is explosive. And you've had the opposite experience. You've been around somebody who seems to be totally at ease. And no matter what they say, it puts you at ease. Okay, and then that's how they're inhabiting their body. So that's what 90-some what percent of the communication is you know, physical. Mm. Okay. And so you're, you're dealing with that as you're dealing with you know, bodily fabrication. Way in the back. I remember you mentioning something about people having uh, maybe um, a history of abuse in their childhood, Mm -hmm. finding meditation on the body to be particularly difficult. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering if you give any sort of recommendations in particular for people with maybe traumatic histories or that kind of background. Okay. um, First, focus on which part of the body, whichever parts of the body you can maintain contact with and try to have a very easy and open way of breathing in that part of the body. And then work section by section, kind of reclaim different parts of the body. If you can reclaim this area, sort of the the center of the the chest, that does an awful lot for the rest of the body. But many times there's going to be a cutoff point right here, so you've got to think consciously, okay, there is this part of the body here and this part of the body here, going down right from the neck. First, you've got to take the parts of the body you already are sensitive to and be very, very gentle with them. And that's what's going to enable the rest of the body to feel like it's, it's okay to open up. But sometimes someone like that also has to go through therapy to deal with some of the other issues. And it's a combination of body work plus therapy that's going to get deal with the emotional side as well. Okay, let's move on. Following up on that, uh, I've oftentimes noticed that in different scanning techniques or what we did this morning in terms of trying to develop whole body awareness in our meditation, uh, that we... I'm wondering if it's a skillful means to not pay attention to the genitals and the, uh, the lower parts 
is that an intentional choice in the Buddhist way of doing things? I think, uh, so it's, more, I think it's more a matter of etiquette. Uh-huh. Now, when you're off meditating on your own, you can focus on any part of the body you want to. But when you're talking in mixed company, 